bitterness. He has sated me with... Thank you, Hallett. ...made my teeth grind on... It's as if he knew what I was going to preach about this morning. <laughs> you know, there's a question I've been asking myself a lot over the last, I don't know, several weeks, let's say. And that question is, how do they do it? How do they do it? I've asked myself that quite often as I've observed the challenging and very difficult life circumstances so many people that I know and people outside the fellowship are facing. I can look around the auditorium this morning, and I know so many of your stories, and I can see this challenge, and I can see that illness when I look around the auditorium, these people that I know and love, my brothers and sisters in Christ. Some of these things are almost impossible life circumstances for so many different people. It might be chronic illnesses or diseases. There are many in our midst that face very significant physical challenges. And some of these things haven't changed for days or weeks or months or years. So that's why I ask that question, how do they cope with it? Every single day. How do they do it? Some of the people I've thought of are outside this church, and they live in almost impossible circumstances, almost impossible conditions. I think of when I watch the news and I think of the people who live under an oppressive regime, for example, and their lives are threatened almost every day, or they're chased from their homes, or they live in extreme poverty. How do they do it? How do they deal with the fact that this is their life? This is their life. It's not likely to change. This is how it is every single day, day after day, week after week, month after month, even year after year. Now, there's some Christians, our brothers and sisters in Christ, who live under persecution. We hear about them, don't we? They're hated for. They're even threatened for their faith in Jesus. And it's not going to change in the foreseeable future. How do they do it? You know, I've even thought of my father-in-law now living among us. Raise your hand over there. That's part three. We read this, beginning with verse 21. But you know, he has called to mind. Therefore, I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Now, we see this kind of thing in the Word, and it's instructive to us. The great English preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, called what we see here self-talking to self. Okay? We see a psalmist doing this in Psalm 42, where it says, Why are you in despair? And some versions say, Why are you so downcast, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him for the help of His presence. So in Lamentations, what do we see? Right after this very long lament that we just read about some very real, very difficult circumstances, we see this similar idea, self-talking to self. But this I call to mind. But this I call to mind. In other words, here's what I choose to think of when despair tries to take over. Here's what I remind myself of when life reaches that point when it's absolutely the hardest for me. Here's the things that I think of. I remind myself of the truth. I remember what we've learned of God's character. 
I remember his past deliverance, remembering that God's very presence brings grace and mercy. Psalm 42 remembered this. Advert shall again praise him, what? For the help of him. They are very compelling and making people want to buy. What, would, what words would you think of? Any, any guesses? Sale, free, what else? New, all of you read so well. Huh? Improved, right, right. These are all good words. You see them all used in advertising. Some of the top ten words in advertising are new and save and proven, love, discover, guarantee, health, results, you, and free. These are powerful words, and they're used because they compel us to want something or need something. Of course, the word we're looking at this morning is found in our text for today, and it's new. New is a very powerful word, isn't it? It tells us at least something important about almost anything we can think of. If we know about something and we know that it's new, it tells us something about it, doesn't it? We'd almost always rather have new than old, wouldn't we? Would you rather have a new car or an old car? Huh? Now, I know that many of us, perhaps most of us, buy used cars because they're cheaper, right? And we can't afford the new cars. And because new cars are always worth a lot more, uh, I'm sorry, they're worth a lot less than what you pay for them the moment you drive them off the lot. Now, auto dealers certainly know the power of this word new which is why that even though most new car dealers sell quite a bit of used cars, they certainly don't call them old cars, do they? And most of them don't even usually call them used. They call them pre-owned, right? They're pre-owned. They're not used. They're pre-owned. And what are they like to be able to say about these used old cars? If they're used or they're pre-owned, what are they like? They're like new, right? That's what they say. They're like new. Or some other things might be sold to us as just as good as new. Why do we want a new car instead of an old car? Well, there are several reasons. But generally, new is more dependable, it's more reliable, and it looks nicer too. It will probably last longer. It will probably have some bells and whistles that an older car doesn't have. But the primary reason we want new with many things instead of old things, and of course this is a generalization because there are some old things that are quite good, and I know that it's not always true. But we want new because we know instinctively that it's usually somehow better than old, right? Now, I like leftovers. In fact, I'm the leftover king in our household, and the microwave is my friend. (laughs) Leftovers aren't new, but they're often pretty close, and some leftovers are just as good as new. Now, Barb's spaghetti is absolutely the best I've eaten anywhere. And when the sauce is fresh out of the pot, it is absolutely outstanding. But the thing about Barb's spaghetti sauce is that it really is just as good when you have it as leftovers as it is when it's fresh out of the pot. Now, there are some other things like this. Are we ready with the audio, Kwong?
<laughs> so whenever we have spaghetti sauce and we talk about how good it is the second day, Barb and I look at each other and say, it's just as good the second day. <laughs> but there are some things that aren't just as good the second day, like possum innards, you know, are just as good the second day. Some things just aren't. And one of the things that may not be as good the second day is God's grace and his mercy. Of course, we never really have to find that out, and that's kind of the good thing about this. We learn from Scripture that we never have to have leftover grace. Never, ever. Now, there are used car lots. There are used clothing stores and furniture stores, and there's garage sales where everything is pretty much used. But in the economy of God, there's no such thing as a leftover grace lot or a leftover grace store. This is the answer to the question we asked at the beginning that we pondered for a moment. This is the answer to that question. How do they do it? How do I do it? How do we do it when life is tough? And it's going to be that way, and it's going to be that way for the foreseeable future. It's almost impossible to manage because of a chronic illness or an ongoing condition in your life. It's unlikely to change. How do we do it? Well, part of the answer is that I just put one foot in front of the other, and I just do it. But I don't do it like the Nike advertising phrase that says, just do it. I do it because God's grace is new every morning, and God's faithfulness is great. And I, as his blood-bought child, have unlimited full-service shopping privileges at the New Grace store, where there's always plenty of mercy, where there's always plenty of grace to be accessed and appropriated for my needs today. It's new today. Now, when we think of ongoing, when we think of continuing, seemingly never-ending challenges in life, there's one, at least one author in Scripture who really faced quite a bit, and that was the author of Lamentations. Many scholars believe it's Jeremiah. It may not have been, but that's not important here. I'm going to read a long section of the beginning of Lamentations 3, and I want to see if you can relate, at least metaphorically, to the hardships that are faced by the author of Lamentations. You know what? This author is describing a difficult, even miserable existence, not unlike some of the things we've been considering and thinking about here this morning. So listen or read along with me in Lamentations chapter 3. We're going to begin with verse 1, and we're going to go through verse 20. So stick with me here. It's kind of a long passage to read this morning. But it's, again, Lamentations 3, 1 through 20. It begins, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stone. He has made my paths crooked. We're only halfway there, folks. Are you depressed yet? He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrow of his quiver. I have become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. 
He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it, and it is bowed down within me. Wow, that's a tough life, huh? My flesh and my skin waste away. My bones broken, darkness and no light. No escape, heavy chains, a laughingstock, bitterness. Bereft of peace, forgetting what happiness is. Some of us have been there haven't we? Some of us have been there. Some of us are there today. If you haven't been there in any way ever, trust me, you will be. Because the truth is life on this planet is hard. That's just the truth, folks. Most of us can relate to these very real, very human feelings of the author of Lamentations. It's a very real lament, isn't it? It's genuine. We value authentic these days. Well, here is Jeremiah, or whoever the author of Lamentations is, being very authentic with us. And if it ended there, it would end just like this passage ends, depressing, hopeless, even despairing. But thanks be to God, it doesn't end there, folks. It doesn't end there. On the one hand, it recognizes this all-too-common human condition that we share in the midst of hard things. My endurance has perished, it says. It feels like there's no escape. But here's where we see a very sharp about face. The writer turns things around. A total change of perspective. And it's a perspective that's brought about by an understanding of who God is. Joel, would you bring me my cup of water? Thank you. It gives us a clear picture of his character and a memory of his works in the midst of his people. After all this lament, the first 20 verses that we just read from Lamentations chapter 3, we read this, beginning with verse 21. But this I call to mind. Therefore, I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Now we see this kind of thing in the Word, and it's instructive to us. The great English preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones called what we see here self talking to self. Okay, We see a psalmist doing this in Psalm 42, where it says, why are you in despair? And some versions say, why are you so downcast, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. So in Lamentations, what do we see? Right after this very long lament that we just read about some very real, very difficult circumstances, we see this similar idea, self-talking to self. But this I call to mind. But this I call to mind. In other words, Here's what I choose to think of when despair tries to take over. Here's what I remind myself of when life reaches that point when it's absolutely the hardest for me. Here's the things that I think of. 
I remind myself of the truth. I remember what we've learned of God's character. I remember his past deliverance, remembering that God's very presence brings grace and mercy. Psalm 42 remembered this, for I shall again praise him, what? For the help of his presence. Think about this for a moment. What would you rather have? Now, if you had to choose, would you rather have God be with you moment by moment, day by day, as he promised in his word to never leave us or forsake us, as Jesus promised to be with us always? Would we rather have that on the one hand, or would we prefer to have our life circumstances altered and changed for what we think is better, but then, on the other hand, not have the presence of Jesus in our lives? Of course, my first answer to that question, if you ask me, was, I want both. (laughs) I want both. I want the presence of God palpable, understandable, feelable in my life. And I want things to be better than they are now, right? But if I really had to choose, here's what I would choose. I want Jesus with me. I want him with me. After all, he's the maker of the universe, folks. He's the King of kings, and He's the Lord of lords. And if in His ultimate wisdom and His perfect love, His sovereign purpose for my good and for His glory, He chooses a season of life for me, even a long season, even a season where I can't see the end. If He chooses that for me, that's difficult. I'd rather have Him with me. I'd still rather have Him with me than have the circumstances magically changed to be easy or somehow better, better in my perspective. Of course, he is with me. That's a promise, folks. But I want him with me. I want and need his grace to strengthen me, to sustain me. I want his new and fresh mercy every morning. So when we call the truth about God's character, about his grace, about his mercy to mind, what does it bring? It brings hope. It brings hope. And again, the good thing about God's love for us is that it's constant. It's constant. Now, that's hard for us to relate to in many ways because our human love for one another is so fickle. It's just so frail. It can wax. It can wane because, hey, we're human. We're frail. We're easily offended. We're self-seeking. We're so tied to our own emotions in our love. But God chooses to love, and he carries it out as a model for the kind of love that he wants us to have for one another. It isn't that there's no emotion to our love. There is, and it can be wonderful. But our love is demonstrated by what we do and not by how we feel. In Bible Bowl this semester, we're learning about the acts of God's love in the book of Acts. But the idea that love is an action is important for all of us to understand, not just the Bible Bowl kids. A love that's steadfast, a love that's steady and unwavering, unaffected in its actions by circumstances or especially by our own failure and by our sin. A love that is truly faithful. That's the kind of love with which God loves us. It's a never-failing love. Now, our love fails at least sometimes, I really want to love my wife unconditionally. I want to be steady 
and I want to be caring. I want to be compassionate and extend grace to her. But you know what? I'm carrying about this heart in a frail jar of clay that's not nearly as steady and as consistent and as faithful as I want to be. Yet we don't have that same experience with God's love. Verse 22 and 23 of Lamentations 3. Let me read them again. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So we see that the love of the Lord is steadfast. We see it's consistent. We see that it never ends. There's no limit to his love. There's also no end to his mercies. Here in this verse, we see the word mercies. And in some other translations, we see loving kindnesses. We see compassions. Now, the Hebrew word here is an interesting word. It's racham. And it's similar to the New Testament word for compassion, which literally carries the meaning of a deep yearning, a deep sensation, a feeling in your gut. It's guts. I mean, that's what it's talking about. When you hear bad news about someone you love, you may have described that moment as like a kick in the gut. You feel it deep inside. Of course, you can have that s- a similar feeling kind of in your gut when you hear good news or when you experience somebody's joy and happiness. So though God's love is demonstrated in his actions for and toward his people, we can understand more of the depth of his mercy by understanding how this word describes it. We can only begin to fathom, to truly understand the depth of God's love for us. We can only begin to compare the emotional life of God to our emotional life. We can never, this side of eternity, fully grasp this. But here's a start, folks. But here's a start. There's a depth to his mercy that we can catch a glimpse of here. And again, we see here in this passage this word new. This, too, is really important for us to get a handle on this morning. We looked at the idea of how fleeting our love, how fleeting our mercy can be toward one another. But God's love, His grace, His mercy are not only never ceasing, they're not only steady and steadfast and consistent, they're new. They're new. These things are new, not once a year, not like the new iPhone that comes out once every year, not once a month, not once a week, but every single morning day by day. Every day of our existence on this planet, God's mercies are new. God's grace and mercy for us that we can access in our lives are fresh and new and there. And again, there are no leftovers in God's economy. This means we don't have to rely on yesterday's grace to carry us through today. We don't have to store up God's grace. We store up or hide God's word in our heart, don't we? But that's only to help us remember his character. It's to help us remember his character that we store his word in our heart. It's only to help us know him better and trust him more and to live obediently in his service. What a wonderful thing it is to know that God's mercies are new every morning, isn't it? Each day gives us a new opportunity to experience and access and rest in God's amazing grace. In Lamentations, we see the author recalling the very real and very difficult circumstances of his life. But here, beginning with verse 21, we see the writer of this book putting his challenges, putting his afflictions in proper 
perspective. He did that by remembering how these things relate to God's character and to God's covenant love with his people. Of course, this is the Old Testament covenant. But think about our promises that we have as his followers under the New Testament. Jesus himself promised us in John chapter 14, beginning with verse 16 through verse 17, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. This helper, folks, God the Holy Spirit, will be with us forever. That means that today, if you're in Christ, his Holy Spirit lives in you. No matter what you face today, he is in you. No matter how hard tomorrow is, he is in you. We see the writer of the book of Hebrews reminding us of God's words from Deuteronomy in Hebrews 13:5. God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. That's a promise. And isn't that a better promise? I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you, he'll be in you. Isn't that a better promise than one that might sound like this? I will make your lives easy and you'll never have any problems or sickness and you'll always be healthy and wealthy. Isn't it a better promise, folks? If we don't see the promise that he will be with us forever as a better promise than one that says he will always make our lives easy, then we don't have a clue what it means to have the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords literally take up residence in our hearts. It's a better promise. It's a better promise, dear brothers and sisters. It goes hand in hand with this understanding from Lamentations 3. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Now, in the corporate prayer meeting, many of you were there this past Wednesday night. Before we prayed, Jim Garrett read a passage from Hebrews 4. Let me read a few verses before this to get the context. It's Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now the verse that Jim focused on Wednesday night in introducing our prayer time was verse 16. And the idea, of course, that we can draw near with confidence to the throne of grace and more so we can find grace at just the right time. At just the right time. Isn't that a compelling thought? God's throne, first of all, is a throne of grace. It's a throne of grace. We don't generally think of thrones on which are seated a ruler as a place of grace, do we? A monarch, the king. I think our tendency is when we approach a throne with a monarch or a king there, we do so with some fear and trepidation. It can be kind of an intimidating place to go. After all, a true sovereign ruler often has the power of life or death. How do we know the ruler will treat us well? How do we know he won't be capricious or petty or vindictive in his judgments toward us? But here we see in Hebrews 
that we can approach the throne with confidence. And the reason we can do that is because it's a throne of grace. It's God's throne. It's the throne Jesus sits on. It's a throne of grace. And we can approach it with confidence only because we approach on the basis of the blood of Jesus who has purchased our access to that throne. Not on the basis of anything we have done, but according to his mercy. When we approach the throne of grace, God sees us through the lens of Jesus' blood. He sees his child. He sees us redeemed and adopted into his kingdom because of what Jesus has done for us. And when we approach the throne of grace with confidence, not in ourselves, but in our advocate, Jesus Christ, what do we find there? We find mercy. We find grace. And not just grace, but timely grace, as it says in this passage from Hebrews. The idea there is in time of need or seasonably, before we are overwhelmed by the temptation when we most need it in temptations and persecutions such as is suitable to the time, persons and end designed. A supply of grace is in store for believers against all exigencies, but they are only supplied with it according as the need arises, that is, today, while it is yet open to us the accepted time. It's well-timed or timely grace. It's when we need it, folks. It's when we need it. And you know what? I need it today. I need it new every morning. Can we see how this relates so clearly to the idea that His grace is new every morning? That we don't need tomorrow's grace today. We can't use yesterday's grace today. We can access what we need from the Lord today because it's new every morning. Now, God gave the people of Israel a wonderful object lesson in this truth, in His care for them in the wilderness after the people came out of Egypt. They needed food, didn't they? They had a new need every day. You can't say, well, gee, I ate yesterday, so I'm good today. You have it every day. We have need of grace for all things new every day. So God provided fresh manna new every morning, a plentiful and adequate supply. It was there for the taking. And we remember, too, that if they tried to save it up for the next day and store up a supply for leftovers... They didn't even have microwave ovens, but they might try to do that, and they did that. And what happened? It spoiled, didn't it? It was spoiled by the next day, except, of course, when they saved on the day before the Sabbath for the Sabbath, and that was so they could collect enough for two days and honor God on the Sabbath by not working to gather manna. But that's how God's grace and mercy is for us. It's new every morning. It's new every morning. It's there for the asking. That's why we can approach His throne, which is, after all, a throne of grace. How do we do it? How do we do it? That's the question we asked at the beginning. How do we do it? How do you do it? How do I do it? How do we manage to get up each day in the midst of a life that's hard and the hardship has no end in sight and put one foot in front of the other and walk through each day? We do exactly what the writer of Lamentations did. We start by saying, this I call to mind. This I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. 
And because God is faithful and because God sits on a throne of grace, we can approach him with confidence every morning and pray, God, I am here. I am here for that new, fresh grace that you offer to me as your child today, the grace that will help me get through the day to do the things I need to do, to serve you and honor you and glorify you in the midst of this difficult life. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God for his faithfulness to each one of us. I'm going to play a song video here at the end, and I want to use this as a time of response for all of us. I want you to listen to the words of the song which echo the things that we've been talking about. And I want you to ask how God would have you respond. Amen.